We are continuing this morning our sermon series through the book of 1 Corinthians, which is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a young church in the city of Corinth, which was this very wild, very licentious, very relativistic city. And he is offering them some practical advice about how to live out their faith on a daily basis, how to take what they believe and turn it into sort of practical steps in life. The theme of the sermon series is essentially, how do, you, how do you make faith real in your life? How do you walk it out day to day? What sort of things do you need to think about as a believer who is walking in the world? Very, very practical book. Paul is dealing with some practical questions. Amen. Um, and today we are taking it up in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We are a little bit beyond halfway through, uh, through the book. And Paul is talking about, uh, essentially this week, he's talking about resisting temptation, uh, which is a really fun topic. Resisting temptation, how many, uh, when I say that, your heart just gets all warm and gleeful? Resisting temptation. Yeah, that's what I thought. Uh, maybe not the most enjoyable topic, uh, but it turns out Paul, Paul has spent uh, several chapters on talking about sin, and now he's sort of moving to uh, some practical advice about how to resist uh, temptation and just sort of navigate through life, avoiding uh, the dangers of sin. Uh, you guys ever fallen into sin? Anybody? No? Well, it, it happens on, on occasion. Um, I, uh, I had a friend several years back um, who... Uh, who fell into sin uh, in a big way. A nice guy uh, ended up having an affair, cheating on his wife. Uh, came in to uh, came in to me uh, one afternoon to sort of confess his misdeed. Uh, we sort of talked about it uh, for a few minutes, and he said to me, "You know, I never planned for this to happen." Uh, and when he said it, I thought, "Man, if I had a dollar for every time somebody told me that, you don't really plan for sin uh, to happen, do you?" Um, but I thought about it for an extra moment this time. So, well, you didn't plan for it to happen, but you might not have planned for it not to happen. And, and that, that might be your issue. This was a guy uh, with whom I was meeting semi-regularly uh, for, you know, for counsel and discipleship. You know, I was there for him uh, if, uh, if he needed to throw out a lifeline. Uh, not only me, but a lot of other brothers as well. Uh, as we talked about the situation, it turned out that his spouse, uh, several weeks earlier, had had the sensitivity to ask, hey, what's up in this relationship that you have with this woman? I'm, I'm getting a queasy feeling. And he sort of, he sort of shrugged that off. Um, it turned out that he got into trouble by making an appointment to meet with this woman after work in his office, you know, after hours when no one else was around, which took a great deal of arranging uh, to, to pull off. How many lifelines did this guy ignore along the way? Tons. He had loads of opportunity uh, to escape the temptation, uh, to not fall into trouble. You never planned for this to happen. Unfortunately, you never planned for it not to happen. You had, you had no, no strategy, no tactic for dealing with temptation in your life. And that's often uh, how we end up getting into trouble. Here's another story from another church uh, even longer ago. It was a great church, 
Um, I was really enjoying being in it. I sort of saw it grow from, you know, sort of being nothing to being, a, you know, a fairly good-sized church, thriving, changing a lot of lives. Uh, and uh, this was back in the days uh, when, when I was single, and I had some single friends uh, who were trying to live morally, trying to figure out how to navigate dating and romance and, and all of that stuff and, and to do it well. And so uh, they were talking about this topic, which I think everybody thought was a good and, and healthy idea. And, and one thing that they decided as a group was to, to not date anyone one-on-one. They wouldn't, they wouldn't like, you know, they, they're all guys. They wouldn't ask a woman out and go on a one-on-one date. Instead, they would date in groups. You know, they would just sort of go out as groups of friends and, and get to know each other that way. Uh, you know, to which most of us thought, well, you know, sure, okay, a little bit countercultural, but whatever. Maybe that, that promotes a sort of romantic moral health, you know, relational strength and transparency. Uh, then, after a little while, they decided that being alone with a woman at any time was unhelpful. Uh, so these guys decided that they would go through life without ever being alone with a woman, unless she was over 65. Not that women over 65 can be really alluring. I'm just saying that to certain ones of you that might be giving me stink eye. Um, never alone with women, which took a lot of engineering in their lives to pull off, you know, because our culture doesn't, you know, mitigate itself uh, in, in that way. So I was like, huh, well, maybe, that seems a little overboard. Then they decided that the church should have this policy throughout the entire congregation, that in our church, no man should ever be alone with a woman. And they started insisting that that's how, uh, that's how we behave. I'm talking about single men and single women, I mean, not like husbands and wives, uh, you know. So there, there could not be any um, commingling. Uh, they wanted to be really careful about that. Uh, at, at which point people started saying, whoa, that's, that's a bit extreme. And then this group of, of uh, young men eventually left the church, taking a cluster of people with them, causing great hurt in the body and accusing the leadership of, of being lax and morally irresponsible in their pastoring. Now that's a different example, right? The, the first story I told here was a guy that just was willfully stupid about getting into trouble, right? He's willfully neglected every lifeline that was tossed him. Uh, and the second story is about a group of guys that were willfully high-strung, right? Uh, they just went to extreme lengths to avoid uh, getting into sin. And I think probably at the end of it, sin terribly by hurting the people around them, uh, casting about accusations and, and injuring the fabric of what was a really, you know, healthy and helpful uh, body of believers. On the one hand, it's amazing how blind and stupid we can will ourselves to be when we start entertaining temptation. When you start entertaining temptation in your life, you can get really stupid. You can really self-deceive at an extreme level, ignoring all the warning signs and all the lifelines that good people are, are throwing out to you. On the other hand, it's amazing how strange and high-strung we can become in our attempts to feel secure against sin. Both are issues. What we need is sort of a healthy strategy, a healthy way of approaching 
uh, temptation and, and sin uh, in our lives. What are the big temptations in your life? Let me just ask that question to start. What are the big temptations in your life? Go ahead, just shout them out. No, don't shout them out. Um, when I ask that question, what are the big temptations in your life, how many of you know? Just sort of raise your hand if you know. You don't have to, like, declare them publicly. Okay, so you know, that's about maybe 20% of you, 15 or 20%, uh, which is interesting right there. I'm not talking about what are your big sins in life, because I know you guys don't have any big sins, but what are your big temptations? What are the areas in life where, you know, if you're not careful, you can start drifting that way, start entertaining uh, the dark options? Um, there's a difference, right, between temptation and sin. The proper response to sin in your life, to moral harm in your life, is sorrow and repentance, right? It's like, oh, sorry, I don't want to do that. I'm going to change the way that I think and the way that I behave. The proper response to temptation in your life, which is that, that place where you start to get pulled but haven't sinned yet, the, re- the proper response to temptation in your life is what? Well, that's the question. What, what should we do uh, at, at that moment? I think whatever the response is, you have to have one. We need to train ourselves to respond not just to the mistakes that we made, we need to respond to the temptation that will eventually lead uh, to, to trouble. Jesus taught us to pray in that most iconic of prayers, uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, which in vernacular English would be something like, Lord, lead us away from temptation and spare us the harm it causes. The word for evil literally means harm or damage, destruction. Uh, lead us away from temptation and spare us all the damage that it will eventually cause us. Uh, we want to fight the battle for living well in this life, living morally in this life. We want to fight that battle at the point of temptation. We do not want to linger into, uh, in temptation. We want to shut it down right there at that point so that we will be spared the harm of sin. So how do you do that? How do you handle temptation in your life? I think uh, it's an important question as well because the world gets us, you know, think about it a little bit, the world gets us through temptation. Uh, it doesn't parade, you know, active sin in front of us. It do- certainly doesn't parade the harm that sin causes uh, in front of us. It doesn't show necessarily the sin itself. It just provides a million temptations to it. Uh, here's a temptation for your consideration. That's mostly the attitude of the world. So the world doesn't, doesn't say, hey, greed is good. Greed. Be greedy. The, word, the, the world instead <clears throat> just portrays luxury and status as being cool. Right? So it just sort of gives you the doorway in. It doesn't necessarily show you what's inside. Right? It doesn't say, you know, adultery is good. It just shows pictures of good-looking, mostly naked women wherever you go. You know, just sort of, it's the doorway. It sort of leads into uh, the trouble. You know, it's it's not technically unfaithfulness to watch all those programs on on TV. It's just entertainment, right? The doorway in. 
Uh, the world doesn't say, hey, be depressed, be discouraged, live in fear. It just teaches you to measure yourself at every turn, which is the doorway into depression and discouragement and fear. The, the world doesn't necessarily showcase the dark dens of iniquity. Uh, it just makes open doorways look fashionable. Hey, come in. Just, just linger in the doorway. Just hang out in the hall for a while and, and see what happens. There are plenty of off-ramps to sin for the weary spiritual traveler in life. See the distinction? Are you with me? Excellent. What we do in life is we often uh, focus on identifying sin so that we can be careful about it. You know, uh, and from time to time in popular Christian culture, there are debates over things that may or may not constitute sin uh, in, in the history of the church. In the not so, risk, not so uh, distant history, uh, the big debates have been about, you know, alcohol. Is drinking alcohol a sin? Is smoking tobacco a sin? Are, there, are Teletubbies morally acceptable? These are, these are the big issues. Um, mostly, I think, it's not difficult to identify sin. That's not really the trouble. The problem is that we have too many ways to excuse it in ourselves. If it came right down to it, everybody could identify what's sinful and harmful. You don't have to be a genius. You just have to be honest. You have to be on it. That's the issue. I don't think that sin can take you by surprise in life. Uh, so I don't think you have to obsess about where it might be lurking. Uh, but I do think that if you have that willful stupidness about it, it can seem like it came out of nowhere. But in fact, any moron could have seen it there all the while. Right? It's, that, it's that willful avoidance. It's that compartmentalization. It's that choice not to think about it. It's like, well, I'm just in the hallway. I'll go down one more step. I'll go down one step. And pretty soon you've fallen down the stairs uh, right into uh, the dankest basement. Uh, and that's kind of, uh, believe it or not, uh, the theme or the themes uh, that Paul is addressing in our passage today. Uh, some excerpts from 1 Corinthians 10. You'll see them on the back of your program. They're going to be up on the big board. Or you could read along in your, uh, the Bibles that, uh, that you brought with you, the well-worn dog-eared Bibles that I hear rustling right now. 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, a couple excerpts. Picking it up first, verses uh, 6 through, uh, I think it's supposed to be 13. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So this is Paul. Paul's been talking about sin uh, for a few chapters now. He's talking about uh, sin that existed in the Corinthian church, and there were, there were some doozies in that community. They were pretty licentious people. And here he's bringing it up again, but he's shifting the discussion a little bit. He's He's going he's gonna to do a little scripture study with them right now, and he's explaining some sort of strategies for, for, again, practical living in life. And he said, now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did, as our ancestors did. Colon. Now come the examples. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. 
the people sat down to eat and drink and, caught, and got up to indulge in revelry. That's actually a quote uh, from the book of Exodus, and it's a quote from the story of the golden calf. You know, where Moses is up on the mountain, the Israelites were like, ah, our prophet is gone. Hey, Aaron, make us a God that we can see and, and manipulate and feel good about. And Aaron's like, sure, here's a golden calf. And then, and then they had a big potluck uh, in front of the calf after dedicating all the food to the, the idol and stuff. And so that was, a, that was a famous line from that passage. After they did all this idolatry, they made their golden calf, uh, they had a potluck and they got up to party. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day, 23,000 of them died. Uh, this is a reference to a story about inappropriate uh, intermarriage and intercourse with, uh, with a pagan tribesman. Uh, we should not test Christ, or some translations will we test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. Maybe you know that story of the plague of snakes in the wilderness, and at the end of it, uh, Moses raised up uh, the bronze serpent, and so everybody who saw it were healed, but, but many, uh, many hundreds of them were killed by the snakes first. Um, and do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel, an, an angel that got, brought a, a great pestilence. So these are all references to the Israelites screwing up and judgment coming in a big way. These things happened to them as examples and were written down in Scripture as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. In other words, if it worked that way for them, the stakes are even higher now because we're at the home stretch. This is not the point where the people of God want to make mistakes. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Some translations will read, take heed that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except, that, <clears throat> except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. I love that. You guys, you guys are sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks our participation in the blood of Christ, and is not the bread that we break our participation in the body of Christ? That sort of leads into a discussion of appreciating what Christ has done for you. The chapter ends uh, a little later in this way. Uh, Paul, again, is bringing up the issue of freedom and grace in the Lord. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. He's actually repeating a point that he made previously in the book, some of you will recognize. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. <clears throat> do things that are healthy for you. Do things that move you forward in the spiritual life. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. After all, you are called to be ministers and servants, not to indulge in fleshly distraction. And then he goes back to talking about the issue of food sacrificed to idols, which he mentioned last week. I told you that he would get back to it this week. This was one of the moral debates of the age. This was sort of a, is it a sin to drink? Is it a sin to smoke? Should you let your children watch Teletubbies? Um, maybe it was a little more significant than that. I don't know. Uh, but 
in pagan Corinth, a lot of the meat that was sold was sacrificed to some household idol and then put in the market. And Christians were wondering, well, is that sinful then for us to eat it, or how should we handle this? Eat everything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. You don't get contaminated by, you know, what you eat or where you sit or stuff like that. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising any questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this had been offered in sacrifice, this meat has been dedicated to an idol, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. I think that's a pretty popular memory verse, right? So <clears throat> whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. It's a good one to have in your pocket. So this is Paul dealing with how to deal with sin and temptation in particular, and he's also making some points about how not to deal with it. He has, like I said, spent a lot of ink so far talking about sin, talking about immorality, raising some specific issues that the Corinthian church was dealing with. Uh, he had called out some sin in the Corinthian church in no uncertain terms. He slammed them for it. He encouraged them not to use their freedom in Christ to sin to presume upon God's grace, well, it's no big deal, and God will forgive me anyway, and hey, we're not under the law, so let's party. Uh, he encouraged them not to abuse their freedom in that way. He explained that sin enslaves people, so even if God doesn't lower the hammer on you when you make a mistake, uh, the sin is still going to hollow you out from the inside, turn you into a slave, uh, make you too weak-minded to resist in the future. You do not want to mess with the drug of sin, he has said. He insisted that we should not bring sin into the church uh, because it can compromise what we're trying to do together. This is a holy assembly trying to do holy supernatural things. So if you're leading a life of sin, don't bring that in here. It just makes it harder for us to be who uh, we are to be as a, as a people. This is a man who uh, championed the principles and, and of grace and forgiveness. That's what Paul was known for. Uh, but he is also serious about sin. He has made that clear so far in the book. Uh, and here he's starting to give advice on how to avoid it. Uh, so let's note a few tips that he gives us. Tip number one, be aware of the damage that lies ahead. He said uh, he's going to talk about some, uh, some really extreme examples of damage that results from sin. He, begin, he introduces it by saying, now here are some examples to keep us from setting our heart on evil things as they did. So he's talking about that heart attitude. Uh, you know what? You don't, you, don't, you don't just sin out of the blue. First you put your heart into it. First your attitude strays your attitude gets pulled, you know. You start, you start lingering there in your thought life, you know. And so Paul is saying, don't, don't even go there. Don't let your heart drift. Don't let your emotions start to take you. 
to that nasty place. And one good way to keep that from happening is to remember that it can get ugly really fast. Uh, I've told you about how sin enslaves you. I've told you about how it eats you out from the inside. If that's not good enough, then let me make this obvious point from Scripture. If you drift into sin, God can smack you hard. And then he gives uh, some, some famous examples from the history uh, of God's people. Um, 23,000 of them died. You know, stuff, stuff like that. A pestilence of snakes. These were examples that God gave to the, to the ancient Israelites to make us sober in this age. It may not be uh, these days that God will send a plague of snakes uh, to get you. Um, I would... Orkin would love that, right? Um, we don't really have snakes in Hawaii, so if God did send snakes, that would be striking. I may have to revisit that. But no, he's probably not going to send snakes to, to sober you up. But he might just as well, Paul is saying. The end of that path is wholesale destruction. And you won't just hurt you, you will hurt all of uh, the people uh, around you. Uh, sin can do damage on its own, but God might deal with your sin. You know, He, he, is, he is watching. He can come down really hard. And this is an extraordinary thing for Paul to say because he is the champion of grace and forgiveness. But he reminds you, no, sin causes so much trouble that God might have to intervene. You don't want that to happen. You don't want that to happen. Uh, so sorry, my, my wife has left the room, right? So Sony and I were, oh, there she is. <clears throat> sorry. Sonia and I were, uh, were dating uh, back in the day, and I was really innocent, but Sonia was really aggressive, and uh, it's kind of how the story goes. And so, well, you know, one evening we're getting a little, little cuddly, uh, maybe, you know, a little, a little too frisky, uh, as it were. It's all entirely her fault. And, uh, and the Lord, you know, bless his heart, uh, he... He sent what, as near as we could tell, was an angel into the room. And, you know, and we, weren't, we were, like, too far gone. I mean, if you had, you know, somebody had snapped a picture of us at that point, it would not have, you know, it, it would not have made the Internet. Uh, you know, it wasn't, well, it wasn't trouble in that sense. But I think what we were doing is sort of entering into temptation. And this presence came into the room that scared the crap out of us. We both felt it instantaneously and independently. Like, what is that? And, I, and I, I don't know if it was this angel that brought pestilence to the Israelite, but it was just a supernatural presence going, <clears throat> you know, it was, it was anti-angel, you know the one. Just God very simply saying, this is serious. You know, I, I love you guys. I have planned for you. You, you don't want to go there. Not, 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 not now. And uh, boy changed the course of our evening fast. Uh, we, we both uh, sobered up. Uh, a very mild example of, of what I'm talking about. Don't tempt God to deal with you that way. You know? Don't do that. Don't, don't make Dad mad. It's one of the first lessons that 
every child has to learn. And if you insist on acting like a child in your adult life, you will revisit that lesson. He's, he's capable of doing that. And if he does it, it's mercy. It's because he loves you. Uh, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. So, I don't know, think about that. Tip number two, uh, take heed, pay attention. So if you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Uh, the NIV translates it mildly. I prefer the King James. Take heed. You know, it's like arrest your attention. Focus your mind on this. You think you're doing well. Notice, you know, what could go wrong. Keep your eyes on the road uh, when you're driving uh, in other words, um, or as he would say in other epistles, you are being hunted. You are being hunted. Um, Satan's out there prowling around. You don't want to give the devil a foothold. Every day uh, there are spiritual entities trying to destroy you. Don't cooperate with them. You don't want to play that game. Um, this bit about sitting down to eat and getting up to indulge in revelry, again, is from the story of, of the golden calf, which is a story, I think, about willful stupidity of the variety that I described earlier. This was most of an entire nation being willfully stupid uh, together. Uh, Moses had gone up to Sinai, and he was meeting with God up there. He was getting the Ten Commandments and all that stuff. And, and I think it probably looked kind of scary. There was some sort of fire or lightning or thunder or something up there, and the people were getting freaked out, and he'd been gone a long time, and maybe he was dead, and, oh, what are we going to do? Uh, we want a God that we can handle, not a God that's scary. And so Aaron, who is having a little rift with Moses, that's part of the story of Exodus, if you read it carefully, was like, hey, no problem. I got this. I'm going to make you an idol that, that makes sense to you. I'm going to make an idol that makes sense to you. So give me some gold, makes this golden calf, and, you know, bad things happen as a result. One of the things that Moses does when he comes down is that he grinds that calf all up and makes the people drink the gold. Uh, just it reminds me of parents washing the kid's mouth out with soap uh, when they say a naughty word. Um, when your parents did not do that to you? Anybody? Okay, good. Uh, they didn't do that enough with me. I still say curse words sometimes. Um, then afterwards, they were like, I mean, Moses came down. He was really angry. He broke the first draft uh, of the tablets. And the response was something like, you know, well, you know, we didn't, we didn't mean to dishonor God. That's not what we were trying to do. We didn't mean to dishonor God. We were just trying to feel better. You know, and, and it's that sort of conversation. A sensible person uh, could have spoken into that and say, well, how stupid are you? You didn't mean to dishonor. You just wanted to feel better. So you decided to think about feeling better instead of weighing the larger ramifications of what you're doing. He just split the Red Sea for you. We had, you know, the pillar of cloud in the day and fire at night. There were the whole ten plagues sort of business. If you had kept your mind on these grandiose miracles, maybe you would have avoided the whole golden calf incident. What were you thinking? And the answer was, well, we weren't thinking about the right stuff. We just wanted to feel better. You know, we just they set our hearts on the wrong thing. 
We just needed to blow off some steam. Uh, so I think what they did is they entered into temptation. And the easiest way for me to avoid trouble is to not loiter at the doorway to temptation. I, I say to myself frequently in life, that's not something I even want to think about. I'm, just, I'm not going to let my heart drift there. I'm not going to think about that. Uh, I pay attention to my own mental reactions. What am I not thinking about? I have learned to, as the gospel says, salt myself with fire in that sense. I just, uh, I'm a wily guy. So, you know, I have to pay attention to my own reactions and my own pretensions. I know what the emotional precursors I have to temptation are. I, I, know, I know what I feel like when I start to drift. You know, when, when, when I'm inclined to temptation, it's usually because I am feeling uh, disappointed or frustrated about something. Those are my triggers. So when I feel that way and I feel my mind start to drift to something fleshly, for me, it's often anger first. Anger is my go-to, and anger is, is uh, often uh, a sinful and damaging, and then anger can lead you to something else. Um, I, I just know that about myself. That's what makes me stupid. Um, so I've learned to pay attention to that and to not linger in that place. However you do it, you want the ability to say, uh, that's trouble. That's trouble. I'm just going to call it for what it is. That's trouble. That's stupid. And you need to say that to yourself. So let's try it now. Everybody, that's trouble. That's stupid. Visualize in your mind right now, those of you who were able to do it earlier, the big temptation in your life. Focus and then say, that's stupid. That's trouble. Why would I want to go there? All right, we'll work on that a little bit later. Uh, tip number three, be practical about things without overthinking. Therefore, my dear friends, uh, flee from idolatry. Excuse me. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fail. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. When you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. Don't overthink this. Have very practical, direct responses to temptation. The trial that you're going through in life, whatever temptation faces you, whatever temptation will face you tomorrow, is fairly common. Uh, Satan is not that creative. It's common enough that others have overcome it. And that's helpful for me to remember. It's common to mankind. And God is faithful. There's always a way out. So whatever is dragging you down, whatever is bothering you, other people have gone through it and succeeded fine. And that's just that's helpful to know. There's, it means that there's no reason you can't pull it off too. Uh, you are not helpless. And I think this is huge. I think it's just huge that you know this, that we all know this. You are not helpless. Say that with me. I am not helpless. I am not helpless. All manner of trouble comes to you in life when you think you're helpless. You are not helpful in life, and you are certainly not helpful or helpless where temptation uh, is an issue. You're not helpless uh, against it. Uh, 
uh, some time ago, uh, this young couple came into my office for marriage counseling. Uh, they were having some issues, uh, and it was presented to me that the problem was with uh, the husband. And so he came into the office. The husband was actually quite repentant and laid out some things uh, that he had been struggling with in an attempt to get some counsel uh, to change. <clears throat> and in the early going, the wife said uh, very strongly, she said, I just don't believe people can change like that. And immediately I knew there was trouble. Immediately I knew that she was into something that she should not have been into. Uh, because when you start insisting that you're helpless, when you give yourself over to that attitude, it's almost foregone that you are locked in some sort of temptation or sin. As soon as you accept that attitude, I'm helpless. And it took some weeks to draw this out, but actually that young woman was having an affair and that was sort of a, you know, a root of, of a lot of evil, a lot of harm uh, in, in their family. I think that was the window. She, she was tempted because there was trouble brewing. She was uncomfortable with how things were going, and then she just decided that she was helpless. Boom! Gets you every time. And it's useful to remember, nah, there's always a way out. Uh, this is a common struggle. And if you would consult the Lord uh, or some trusted brothers or sisters, you'd probably get some good advice and some good lifelines. You don't have to do it. You don't have to go that way. You don't have to go down that dark path. You can quit right now if you're in sin. You can quit today, no matter what your sin is. There is a way out. People have already overcome it. There are plenty of models for you. Don't play that helplessness game. Oh, you be wise to call out to God for help or to send some lifelines toward brothers and sisters. That can be part of your capacity. But God doesn't give you anything that you can't endure. He doesn't give you any challenge that you cannot overcome. Clearly. So let's just not play that game. Um, finally, uh, verses 23 through 31 at the end, he's talking about this uh, eating food sacrificed to idols. He said, look, 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 don't worry about it too much. If you eat meat sacrificed to idol, idols, it's not going to contaminate you spiritually. Um, if you go to somebody's house and they serve you uh, a steak and say, this was, this was sacrificed to, you know, my, my idol, then you, may, you might not want to eat it. Uh, but that's for their sake. That's so that they don't misunderstand you and think that you're open to worshiping two gods. You don't want to compromise your testimony. You don't want to make people misunderstand uh, your dedication to worshiping the one true God. But neither do you want to go through life thinking, ooh, I have to be careful or I will be tricked into sin. And that's really what Paul's saying. Uh, don't worry about being tricked into sin. Worry about lingering in temptation. It's much different, right? You're not, you're not going to fall into sin because you just lacked the knowledge. You're going to fall into sin because you lingered where you shouldn't, because you let your heart drift there. You went there emotionally. You didn't, you didn't fight against temptation. And if you don't fight against temptation, uh, you'll find yourself in sin. And then there's nothing for it but sorrow and repentance. which is also good to do. But save yourself the trouble. Save yourself the damage if you can. 
There are a zillion things we could talk about with respect to living free of sin, I think. Uh, Paul is just offering one sort of meditation here uh, to the Corinthians because he knew them. And I think this advice is sort of tuned to that particular church. Uh, if I were offering uh, Blue Water or certain individuals advice on resisting th- sin, I would tune it as well, you know, because I know your strengths and I know your weaknesses. And so uh, he's not talking about every strategy that you could pull, but he's giving good practical advice worth considering. Uh, to summarize, he's saying... Uh, if you want to live out your faith practically, free from the destruction of sin, well, number one, consider temptation. Fight the battle at that point before you enter into sin. Consider that point of temptation, which is different from actually actively sinning. What we do is that we allow ourselves to be tempted because no harm done yet, and then we're surprised that the sin happens. Willful stupidity. So, Uh, It's temptation that you want to flee from. Uh, Number two, keep harm in mind. Know that if you go that way, there will be trouble. Um, Pay attention. You are the object of predation. You are being hunted. The enemy wants to destroy you. Sin is lurking at the door. Um, So so be mindful. Be aware. Um, Be practical. Don't overthink things. Don't play the helplessness game. That philosophy is corruption. So don't go there. Whatever you've got going on, you can resist it. You can get free. No sweat. Might take a little sweat, but you can get free. I'll probably throw in one more here at the end, which is The best way to avoid temptation and sin is to be healthy. The best way to avoid weeds in your lawn is to have really healthy grass, right? It's to do the things that make you spiritually fit. Do the things that are the antidote to the temptations. So I want to close with this. Um, Again, this is just a partial meditation, but I throw this out because this is a little helpful for me. Over the years, I've been tempted bunches of different ways. I've become an expert on different creative ways, I think, to give in to temptation, to sin. And uh, being a pathological simplifier and organizer, um, I've, I've tried to come up with things that I can do on the occasion of the sin of the day. Uh, one way I've, I've organized this in my own thinking is I've, I've borrowed from the ancient Catholic tradition of the seven deadly sins. Do you guys know that? Seven deadly sins. This was a way that the church in uh, the Middle Ages used to teach about sin and temptation to the congregants, most of whom didn't even have access to Scripture. And they came up with seven deadly sins. The easiest way to remember them is that they correspond to the characters on Gilligan's Island. This is the genesis of the characters on Gilligan's Island. If you're over 40, you know Gilligan's Island. How many of you know the, the, the old 1960s, 70s sitcom, Gilligan's Island? How many of you can sing the song? Yeah, of course. So uh, the seven deadly sins are pride, anger, lust, envy, sloth, greed, and fear. Pride uh, is the professor. He's full of himself. He always has the answer. Anger is the skipper. He's always beating on Gilligan. Uh, Lust, of course, is Ginger. Uh, Envy is Marianne, who felt insecure vis-a-vis Ginger. Um, 
Uh, sloth is uh, Mrs. Hal, who is always sitting in the bamboo lounge chair with a drink and an umbrella. Uh, greed would be Mr. Hal, who just thought nothing about money, uh, getting ahead. And then fear would be Gilligan, because he was always running away from things and feeling very wimpy. There you go, the seven deadly sins. You will remember nothing I say about 1 Corinthians today, but you'll be like, Gilligan's Island, yeah. I'm going to mine that for moral nuggets. The antidote to pride, I think, is confession. If you're feeling prideful in life, if you know that about you, if you'd be like, yeah, I got the answers, take a moment and confess something embarrassing to your friends. Every Holy Spirit retreat, we have the circle of filth. We divide into... Uh, male and female groups, and we, uh, we confess our sins to one another before we pray for the Holy Spirit to come. Uh, and the caveat is that if you're going to confess a sin, it has to be at least a little bit embarrassing. It takes pride out of the equation every time. I will confess sins that are 10, 20 years old sometimes just for the sake of keeping myself, you know, humble instead of, of prideful. So confession is a great antidote to pride. A great antidote to anger is thankfulness. This was not intuitive to me at the beginning, but anger is a huge problem of mine. Uh, so thankfulness is a discipline in my life. It is a right that I practice. When I get into those angry seasons in life, I do this thing called the hundred thankfuls. Uh, sometimes I get so angry I can't even pray. I just, I, I'm so angry that all I do is complain to God. So I will not pray, I will just thank. Uh, I will get up in the morning and my whole prayer time is listing a hundred different things that I'm thankful for to the Lord. Sometimes I lose count, sometimes it's more than 100, sometimes it's left. But that is the antidote to anger, thankfulness. You cannot simultaneously be angry and thankful. And you all have stuff to be thankful for. Lust, I think a great antidote to lust is fasting. If you are lusting after a woman, if you are lusting after a guy, go without food for a week. And that will change your priorities. Uh, you know, sex is a basic desire. Food is a more basic desire. And if you can conquer that one, then you have an easier time conquering this one. Uh, works for porn, by the way, guys. Um, envy. I think the antidote to envy is mission, is purpose, is calling in life. If you're plagued by envy, what you need to know is that God has specific things for you to do. You have an individual calling. God makes individuals. And that is an antidote to envying or coveting uh, someone else. The antidote to greed is sacrifice. I have a lot of money, but I'm not greedy. Great, give it away. We will, we will be able to tell if you're, if you're greedy. Not every rich person has to do that. But if you think greed might be a problem, sacrifice. Not, not just sort of giving some away, but sa sacrifice. Make it hurt. And that helps get greed, the temptation of greed, out of your life. And the antidote to fear is risk. The opposite of fear is faith, and risk is faith in motion. You cannot contemplate faith. You have to do faith. And so if you are a fearful person, uh, you have to risk in life. Whatever your fear is, the only way to beat it is to run straight at it. Straight, you have to attack it with a war cry. That is the attitude that we need to have as people of, of faith in life. Whatever you're afraid of, turn it into an action step. And if you don't know what it is, come talk to me. I'll give you one. I'm really good at that. You have to, you have to risk. What, I miss sloth? I'm going to get to that eventually. I'm good. 
uh, the antidote to sloth. I'm going to say routine, uh, which is uh, my preferred word for discipline, because uh, routine makes it practical. You know, have a routine. Uh, that's the way to be disciplined. If you're a lazy person, have a routine and do not break it. That's the way to get things done in life. And what will happen is that you will develop capacities that you never thought you could have. You know? Great way to stay healthy then is to practice confession, practice thankfulness, practice fasting. Uh, know your mission and pursue it. Have a routine in life that keeps you moving in a positive direction. Sacrifice regularly. That's really what tithing is about, after all. Um, and there are other ways to sacrifice beyond money. Time is a good one. Uh, and and uh, risk regularly. Create a culture of risk in your life. I have to stop there. Uh, I'd like to just end uh, with an invitation uh, to practice some of those things. Uh, some of you have been lingering in the doorway of temptation, and you know it. Whether you've been actively sinning in that direction or not, uh, you have set your heart, you've allowed your heart to drift into areas where they should not be. That's the moment to fix it. Make a strong step now. That's what you need to do. It's nothing but destruction down there. You can. You don't need to linger there. There are better things for you in life. So that's sort of a pre-repentance uh, that's the best time to do it, by the way. Others of you uh, are gripped by sin in your life. You've been struggling. It's probably something that you want to get rid of, but you just keep going there. You just keep going there. And so the step that you need to make today is, is sorrow. You need to tell somebody and you need to, to change your mind about it. Probably the mind change that you need is to tell yourself that you're not actually helpless and to accept the lifelines that are being cast out to you. Because there are lots of lifelines here at Blue Water Mission. We have lots of counselors. We have a whole counseling ministry, a whole counseling center. We have excellent small group leaders. Get in one and be transparent. There's going to be a prayer team over there today. In fact, why don't you guys go there? Lifelines. You don't have to will yourself to be stupid enough to reject all of these lifelines. And you don't have to tell yourself the lie that, well, you'll do it tomorrow. Take a step today, you know. Well, why you have the faith to do it. Maybe today you want to practice, uh, uh, you know, confession. Just walk up and say, hey, this is my sin. Uh, and these are very nice people. Uh, they will say you are forgiven in Jesus' name. They will invite the Holy Spirit to come and they, they will forget it ever happened. But you won't. Uh, maybe you just want to do a confession of thankfulness today. You just want to go up to somebody and say, here are ten things I'm thankful for or something like that. Um, any number of responses that you could do. But I encourage you uh, to not linger today. To get on it. To get on it. It's something worth thinking about. Let's pray. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come with the spirit of revival, that you would make us live in those places where we have rejected life. I pray, Lord, that you would revive uh, our community of faith, uh, make us fully alive in Jesus. 
I pray that we would not cooperate with death, that we would not cooperate with darkness, that we would not cooperate with sin, that we would not cooperate with the enemy. Uh, we are fully into you, Lord. I pray, Holy Spirit, for the spirit of conviction to come upon us this morning. Uh, not, please, Lord, that spirit of condemnation which the enemy purveys. The spirit of conviction, the conviction that brings uh, strength and action. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus' name, um, do not feel condemned. Do not be overcome with guilt. In the name of Jesus Christ, be overcome with faith and longing. There are better things ahead. Do not dabble, do not linger. You don't need it. Let your conviction come, Lord. Now, Father, give us a vision of the way to walk. Just give us some passion uh, for what, what the path looks like ahead. Um, show us what life of strength looks like. Come, Lord. Let's kind of wait a minute for the Holy Spirit to do his work. We all need a little refreshment in these areas, every one of us. Do your work, Holy Spirit. That's your palpable presence. Just think some of you are feeling a, a reassurance from the Lord, which is often what conviction feels like. It's like, not, not, there's better for you. I, I, I just sense that some of you are feeling his reassurance in an almost physical way, almost like his hand is, is on your back. Oh, stand up under it. It's good. In Jesus' name, amen.